14 August 2020. This is the Room Now podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. This week, unpronounceable new generic names, MRI of the knee in OA, what does it all mean? And a whole lot of COVID numbers. In essence, we might call this a COVID recap. But first, congratulations to Dr. Ken Sag, who's been officially named as the new chief of the Division of Clinical Rheumatology and Clinical Immunology and Rheumatology at University of Alabama, Birmingham. Ken's been there a long time. Great guy, does a lot of interesting outcomes research, and now is going to lead that division into its next generation of making leaders in rheumatology. Look to Ken and UAB for great things. Great things are measured often in dollar sales amount. Well, the numbers are out for Blockbuster Drugs in 2019, and as has been the case in years past, rheumatology drugs are usually just jamming the list. Uh, at least in the top 10, we've got four drugs that we are known to prescribe. Leading the pack again is Humira. Uh, these are worldwide sales at $21.4 billion. Number three is still Etanercept holding in there at $8.1 billion. Number four, and kind of moved up the list a little, is Stellara, 6.6, enjoying use in psoriatic disease and spondylitis now. And still holding on at number 10, sound like Casey Kasem there, is Remicade at $4.6 billion in sales. That's Remicade, not the generic. So I think if you added in the generics, the biosimilars of, of uh, Remicade, it might well be very high on the list. Uh, all those other three drugs don't yet really have any substantial worldwide, well, that's not true. Enbrel's got uh, biosimilar sales uh, outside of the U.S. That are, that are growing and looking good. So um, a lot of good reports this week about ankylosing spondylitis uh, that are, I think are relevant to practice. Um, one study from the Corona Registry looked at almost 500 patients with axial spondyloarthritis, and in their cohort, um, 25% of those patients had enthesitis. The interesting thing about that was that enthesitis was associated with, guess what, worse disease activity, worse quality of life. I mean, patients don't do as well. This is true in a lot of diseases, but also especially in the spondyloarthropathies where co uh, the presence of comorbidities are associated with worse outcomes. The presence of these extra spinal manifestations are associated with worse outcomes. I think this is a reason to step up and maybe not rely too long or too heavily on simple therapies that are probably not gonna be as effective as some of our newer, more aggressive therapies. Um, the other interesting thing that came out this week was Cosentix um, being effective, that's a secukinumab, being effective in um, non-radiographic axial spondyloarthritis. That was a nice and new interesting report. Uh, uh, I had a case this week of someone with Bichette's. And, you know, we all know about uh, Bichette's and how to diagnose it and too much steroid use being used. And we're very grateful with the FDA approval of a Primalast for Bichette's. Uh, and we know that most of that data was really based on improvement of oral ulcerations. Um, my patient with Bichette's had uh, genital ulcers and orals and uh, was doing well on a Primalast, not quite as well 
with the genital ulcers as the oral ulcers. Oral ulcers are totally resolved. So I looked up the, the original um, reports in the New England Journal article. Uh, as you know, uh, Apremolast was approved for Bichette's in 2019, and its approval was based on two studies, a phase two and a large phase three, showing significant improvement in area under the curve with regard to oral ulcers and their severity. But in that study, uh, the last study that was published, um, there was significant improvement in overall quality of life and some global measures of, of Bichette's. But there was a non-significant trend in improvement in genital ulcerations. Now, the problem was that there were only 17 patients and a few hundred patients who were enrolled with genital ulcers. That wasn't the point of the trial. So I think maybe we need more data. When I say non-significant trend and only in 17 patients, it still looked pretty good. 71% resolution on a premolas versus uh, 41% on placebo. 41% on placebo? How much does that placebo cost? Again, the power placebo is quite amazing. Uh, a study came out this week about the correlation of MRI in knee-OA. And when looking at knee-OA uh, pain in 294 patients from the osteoarthritis initiative, uh, these are patients who were followed at least six years with at least four repeat, repetitive MRIs, they found that the features that were best associated with knee-OA pain on MRI were meniscal extrusion, meaning the pain is not from the OA, it's from meniscal disease, um, full thickness cartilage loss, that seems to make sense, and osteophytes. So there, in this case, there is some correlation between imaging and pain. As you know, the correlation between pain and um, Kelgren-Lorenz x-ray scores in NEOA is not that great. So pain is a multimodal, multi-mess in trying to figure out in some patients who have NEOA. Uh, Bristol-Myers Squibb announced a new name for its TIC2 inhibitor. This was pre previously called BMS 986165. It's been studied, uh, I believe there's a New England Journal report that was, showed very impressive data in psoriasis about two years ago. It's in clinical trials for psoriasis, psoriatic arthritis, lupus, and inflammatory bowel disease. It's been called the TIC2 inhibitor. As you know, TIC2 is one of the, the, the intracellular mediators, the Janus kinase inhibitors. Uh, TIC2 is one of the others that um, is a potential target for drug therapy. Uh, and this is sort of a selective TIC2. Um, and the data looked really good in what I've seen so far in mainly psoriatic disease. Well, it's got a name. It's called Ducravacitinib. Ducravacitinib. All I know is that it's 15 letters long. I think that's a record in rheumatology. The do might have something to do with the two in tick two. The crave, eh, nobody knows the origins of these drugs. So um, maybe that's a whole one hour CME lecture at some point that I don't want to sit through. Anyway, congratulations to BMS and Ducravacitinib. So we have a number of reports about COVID that uh, I've been wanting to put out. Uh, just this past week, JAMA uh, has an, uh, I'm sorry, not JAMA, Annals of Internal Medicine reports that um, uh, on the issue of ACE inhibitors um, and ARBs and whether or not that's a good thing or a bad thing in patients with COVID-19 disease. As you know, um, the SARS-CoV-2 virus binds to 
uh, ACE inhibitors to gain access uh, and have undergo endocytosis into cells that it attaches to. So ACE is important in the pathogenesis of COVID, but would giving an ACE inhibitor or ARB somehow be a bad thing or would it be a good thing? No one really knows. Well, now this report comes out. Based on this report, um, 23,565 uh, patients infected with uh, COVID-19, uh, they showed that the use of ACE inhibitors and ARBs was not associated with more severe outcomes. And that's fairly high certainty evidence looking at a number of different reports. Um, so, and moreover, that uh, taking those drugs did not seem to change um, uh, test results for the SARS-CoV-2 virus. So, again, you can continue to use ACE inhibitors and ARBs reasonably um, and effectively in your patients without impairing their COVID outcomes. Um, obviously, there's a lot else that will impair COVID outcomes. Um, speaking of COVID outcomes, maybe it's best just to not get COVID. And who better to look at than... Uh, Healthcare workers who are constantly around COVID. There are two reports, um, both coming out of New York. Um, the first report looked at almost 3,000 patients who underwent um, testing. These are hospital employees. Um, most of them were antibody testing, some were PCR, some were both. Turns out that, again, um, uh, when you looked at the overall infection rate, um, not, and that's just based on serologic positivity, not based on symptoms, it was 9.8%, and that being sufficiently below the regional um, comparative numbers, at least uh, about half as, uh, as, uh, as much. Um, again, a strong statement in favor of the many things that healthcare workers go through to avoid that virus, meaning PPE works effective PPE works. This is, this is mirrored by another study from uh, Northwell um, University Hospitals where they tested 46,000 of their patients through June. And overall, they found a similar number of seropositivity, that being a, a low number of 13.7%. Um, and they showed a really good correlation when looking at just the serologic test for antibody and those who had PCR. So the PCR positive ACP workers were about 94% likely to be seropositive. Similarly, or conversely, the PCR negative healthcare uh, workers um, uh, who were, uh, again, PCR negative, uh, they were about 90% likely to be seronegative by serologic testing. Again, both these reports say that what we do in healthcare is effective at uh, keeping those numbers low. Uh, and it says a lot maybe for doing uh, the easier to do uh, serologic testing. The latest numbers that came out from the uh, CDC, again, this is a little bit behind what you see at Johns Hopkins and on CNN, but these are verified cases from the CDC. I haven't put a number up in a long time because you know it goes up like, you know, 10,000 a, a month uh, as we're on our way to um, 300,000 infections in the United States. But the most recent numbers, uh, 300,000 deaths, I'm sorry, um, the most recent numbers here are um, five. Point one million infections in the United States. Um, again, it's just shocking. When you look at deaths at, at the time they did this, is one hundred and sixty-three thousand deaths, uh, and that was on the day that this was produced, which was midweek. There was twelve hundred new deaths on the day before. Uh, th this week, we uh, we had uh, a day of fifteen uh, hundred deaths in a day, 
you know, at the peak of what was going wrong in New York City, it got as high as almost 900 a day in New York. But again, that New York is way down and other st- other states are way up. My state of Texas had 354 deaths just the other day. But we have averaged over a thousand deaths for the last 17 days. This is still a gigantic problem. The um, states with the highest numbers are led by New York at 32,000, New Jersey at almost 16,000, California at 10,000, Massachusetts and Texas uh, about 8,700. Not far behind is Florida, Arizona, uh, Illinois, and Pennsylvania at uh, six to seven thousand deaths apiece. The good news is that of all these deaths and infections, there's not so many with amongst healthcare workers, according to the, the uh, CDC. 130,000 uh, healthcare workers have been infected with the coronavirus, uh, of whom 618 have died. So I think that's encouraging data, although sad data. I had a number of reports for them specifically looking at um, observations in our rheumatic disease and autoimmune patients and what happened when they got the COVID virus. They all showed the same thing, meaning they showed a few very important points. Uh, And these echo the earlier report from Gianfresco and Philip Robinson and uh, as Danny and others from the Global Rheumatology Alliance that was published in ARD in July. And that was that amongst the first 600 patients in the Global Rheumatology Alliance, those are your rheumatology patients who were uh, put into the database because they had a COVID infection. And when they looked at the risk of hospitalization, they showed that taking prednisone 10 milligrams a day or more was associated with a twofold significantly increased risk of getting um, a COVID infection. Uh, They showed there was really no uh, outcome change when you looked at our patients who were taking biologics and or conventional DMARDs, except for those that were taking TNF inhibitors, where there was a significant reduction in COVID infections by 60%, odds ratio of about 0.4. That's actually mirrored pretty well by these four reports that say, number one, Uh, Rheumatic disease patients, autoimmune disease patients are at risk for COVID infection if they're uncontrolled. Two of these four reports say the same thing. Patients with active disease, as judged by the clinician or by disease activity measures, are at a up to twofold higher risk of getting the infection. Um, But that they showed across the board, the use of DMARDs and uh, biologics was not associated with um, uh, worse outcomes or death, but that um, um, the steroids were associated with a higher risk of worse outcomes. A number of reports said that, um, uh, again, cytokine blockers and other biologic therapies looked really good. Uh, a, a letter from Kevin Winthrop uh, on a survey he's done of um, the ID community, where they identified over 2,500 patients, patients 3% of whom were on immunomodulatory drugs, and in their cohort, 12% died, 82% were hospitalized with COVID. They found that the patients who were taking uh, both uh, TNF inhibitors and JAK inhibitors, there were no deaths. So I think that this begs the question, should we be revising our guidelines? Um, our guidelines have said, you know, patients um, should not change their therapies in this COVID era. That makes sense. Our guidelines have said that patients who are 
um, not severe at home can probably stay on their therapies. But once they're severe and going to the hospital, then everything should be stopped. And, you know, the only things that they said might could be continued would be hydroxychloroquine. That's out. Hydroxychloroquine really isn't going to affect the outcome. But then again, it really doesn't need to be stopped either. And then tocilizumab, where the data continues to be continues to be mostly positive, but sometimes negative, it's still up in the air. So I think that though the, the data that we have that's accumulating says our patients should be continuing their therapy if they're infected, including if they're in the hospital. There's a lot to be said for patients being on TNF inhibitors, and maybe they should also be on anakinra, where there's a number of consistent observational reports, I must say, and maybe the JAK inhibitors and maybe tocilizumab. But again, still more research is needed. The good news is that there are a lot of clinical trials that are about to mature and hit the, sh the, the publications, and hopefully they'll hit them fast, and we'll start seeing these in September where we can start making more definitive statements about treatment. But so far, our patients are doing well. Continuing therapies seems to be a smart move. That's it for the podcast this week. You can go to the website and check out these citations. Two announcements. Number one, last week I made a pitch for any mm, second-year fellows, third-year fellows, ninth-year fellows who'd like to join Room Now and reporting on the ACR can send me an email at jackcush at roomnow.com. Turns out that email was blocked and not working, so if you had a bounce back, please send it again. We're looking for some reporters to work on ACR 2020, the virtual meeting. It's going to be exciting. Uh, and lastly, we are about set to go with our viewer questions line. It's going to be called uh, Backtalk. You'll see it on the on the webpage. You'll see it on the email. If you go to our podcast page, there'll be an icon for Backtalk. This is where you can send me a message, ask me a question. I'll bring up a few of them each week during this podcast. That's it. Take good care of yourselves. See you soon.